Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show. It's Monday, December 21st. Tonight, the great convergence happens. We'll be speaking with Paul Delaney from York University. We'll also talk about hockey. The NHL and the NHL Players Association have worked out how this season will go. What does it mean for Canadians? A Northern division. We'll talk with Rick Zamperin, our local sports expert on that. But first, the reason why we reached out to Colin Furness, who, of course, you've heard several times on the show before, he is an epidemiologist from the University of Toronto uh, is about one of the big stories. If it's not lockdown, it's about the coronavirus mutating. And what exactly does that mean for us? Colin, welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Good morning. So uh, officials in Britain this past weekend sounded an urgent alarm about what they called a highly contagious new variant of coronavirus that is circulating England. Um uh, it's my understanding from reading here, this mutation may have occurred months ago, and it's fairly predictable, we know, for a virus to mutate. But what I want to know from you is, how do scientists and health officials spot the mutation? You spot it by doing a genomic analysis. So you, you look very carefully at the genome and you look for differences that way. And that's an important thing to do. We know that, that the coronavirus mutates far more slowly than it would nor- we would normally expect. It's actually got a gene that does proofreading when it copies. And ironically, and that, that's unusual, it's very unusual, ironically that's good news for us, the fact that it mutates very slowly. That's one of the only good news discoveries about coronavirus that I've heard. That said, it still mutates, and this mutation is potentially worrisome. They say that it's, they think it's more contagious. That's actually a supposition. It's, that's actually not been demonstrated. There's a lot of reasons why um, it, may, it may be proliferating. It's not necessarily that it's more contagious, but that's, that's quite plausible. And the worry is that it is, um, the mut- this particular mutation is happening on the, the protein spike that people talk about a lot. That's the spike that allows the, the virus to attach to people and it's also what the vaccine targets. So we do have some concern that mm-hmm. it could, if, if not now, then later, possibly reduce the effectiveness of the vaccine. Can I just stop you there? Because I want to know, who, who has time to do the genomic testing? Are these people in the labs when we get a positive case of coronavirus that they take that, uh, that sample and they test, they break down the, the genome? Because like, that seems like an extra step. And how important is that step? usually done by university researchers. And so, yes, they will get their hands on samples, positive samples that have come from public health. And they will do, uh, it's, it's just like running your genome, that, that's what 23andMe does or that, or that uh, Ancestry.com does. So it's the same process of reading the genome and, and comparing it. So it's, it's an active area of research. And I'm glad that we actually have people on that because it's very important to understand the evolution of this. This is a really, this is a really tricky enemy. And to understand how how it is changing is extremely important. So presumably we could be missing all kinds of variations, mutations. Well, there's been something like 4,000 mutations noted to date, and that sounds like a lot, but it's actually not. Not for a virus that has copied itself literally billions of times. Uh, Actually, probably hundreds of trillions of times because it, mm. it's, it, it copies itself a lot within any individual person. So with that much copying, um, you would expect actually a lot more. So it's, it's one of these things where people hear mutation and they get really worried. No, no, this is what the virus does. This is what all viruses do. And by the way, it's very common for a virus to mutate to become more contagious. It's just natural selection. A virus happens to become more contagious and then it's obviously more successful. It's also very common for viruses to become less lethal as they 
they mutate. Now, that's not guaranteed, but that's also, it tends to be what happens. Viruses don't want to kill their hosts, they just want to reproduce. So viruses that are better at reproducing without killing their host also tend to proliferate. So we may see some of these mutations may make COVID a little bit less serious. No evidence for that, but that's, I like to be an optimistic person. So that's, that's one good news angle to mutation. Okay, so what do we know about this new variant? And is, is, is variant just a fancy name for strain, or are they different? Uh, strain is a pretty big word that suggests something really different. I don't think okay. there is a hard definition there. I, I guess I prefer variant, but it, it's, it's one and the same. Okay, so what do we know? Um, there are thoughts that it could be more contagious. You don't know if that's, uh, that's a, a possibility yet. It's too early to, to figure that out? Well, if we think, so we think it's more contagious because it proliferated so very quickly. Now, that can also happen because of bad timing and a bunch of super spreader events. So London had a low, relatively low cases of COVID, so they were kind of primed to get a wave, and that wave happened to be this. So that means it could be more contagious or it could be a coincidence. It's, it all gets down to that spike. So when... Mm-hmm. when COVID moved or coronavirus moved from animals to humans, it's because it had a spike that was flexible enough to target people, maybe not perfectly suited to humans, better better suited to bats, but workable on humans. And then, of course, as it reproduces, it's going to continue to look for ways through natural selection, through mutation. It'll look for ways to get better at adapting to its new environment. And so that's what it's doing. Well, we have to go back to wiping down groceries or being you know, cautious by quarantining things we don't necessarily have to bring inside yet? Now, that's a really good question. Probably not, but there's two things going on. One is cold, cold weather and dry air means without the mutations, coronavirus actually lives longer and is more effective. So it's, it's, I, I want to be more cautious about touch in general in the winter. Hmm. Uh, as, for, as for this mutation, the effect of this mutation on that, don't know. That's actually, that's, I don't think that's actually really knowable. I think it makes sense to be more vigilant, as I say, at least because of the weather and then perhaps because of this variant as well. Transport Canada last night joined a whole uh, whack of other countries, European countries. Uh, they're basically restricting flights from the UK for 72 hours. That's what they can legally do. And then I think they can add time on. How long of a flight restriction is optimal to keep this strain at bay? Or should we assume this COVID variant is already here? My answer to that question is probably not quite what you expect. I think it is lunacy for us to be flying at all. The idea that we have to actually call for a travel ban because of this new variant tells me something really important. We're not managing COVID. We should be grounding our airplanes plain and simple. Countries that have had great success fighting fighting COVID and regions in Canada that have had great success, that is the Atlantic provinces, all have something in common. They've limited travel. Uh, I still get seat sale uh, emails from Air Canada. That is absolutely, that's beyond irresponsible. And I think Transport Canada has blood on its hands by not banning travel. So yes, we should be stopping travel from the UK as well as everywhere else. And that should be for a lot longer than 72 hours. Okay, uh, COVID mo- uh, mutations shouldn't affect the efficacy of our COVID vaccines is what we're hearing. Can you explain why? 
Well, the, 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 it's, it's actually physical geometry. It's almost like Lego, thinking about the antibodies that the vaccine is, is, is causing your body to create. So it's like Lego pieces, and those Lego pieces are looking for something to fit. They're, that is, they're looking for that particular spike, and they're designed to, to, to clamp onto that spike, which makes the virus unable to attach. That's, that's really how, how the vaccine works. And so if you change that Lego piece that, that's, on the, that's on the virus by a little bit, fine, it can still attach. Change it a bit more, okay, it may not attach as well, as completely, or as often. And eventually, the, the misfit is so much that the Lego doesn't snap on at all. And so that's the process by which mm. uh, a virus might become resistant to a vaccine. But we're not there yet. I don't think that of all the things we need to worry about, I don't think this variant is it. I think we really just have to worry about the amount of contact we're all having and spread. Mm -hmm. Because COVID is a very, very ugly disease. It's not flu. It's not a minor thing. It's a, it's a pretty ugly virus. We're speaking with uh, Colin Furness, who's an epidemiologist at the University of Toronto and friend of the show. He's been on so much and been so generous with his time over uh, this pandemic. The provincial lockdown is looming, Colin. Is this the appropriate response to the rising COVID numbers, in your opinion? I mean, some people in northern Ontario would say, well, this is a bit extreme. We don't even have the cases up here. I, I disagree with the idea that because we don't have a lot of cases, we don't need to take action. I think that that is that thinking actually is what got us in the situation we're in now. You may remember that the province just days before starting to lock things down was talking in with great relish about all the things that was opening up. This was a problem. So we've, we've created the situation by, by not being progressive enough or not being proactive enough. And, and so now we've really painted ourselves into a corner. Do we need to do this dreadful lockdown? Well, yeah, because we painted ourselves in the corner, but I think this represents failure. It represents failure to manage uh, the pandemic. We should have been testing. And the real tragedy here is we're closing schools now beyond the regular break. That's where the testing should have been going on. We should have been testing everybody. Why? Well, we know schools are relatively safe compared to the community, but if we test kids, we'll be able to find families who are infected. Public health has been going on in schools since we've had public health. More than a century of actually using Using the fact that we've got access to kids uh, really readily, really easily, really predictably, we should be testing. We should have been testing every day, testing kids. And if we did that, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now. So I feel really angry that we have decided that we're not testing. I, I point the finger squarely at our chief medical officer of health, who I believe does not understand testing strategy, has, mm. has, has expressed no interest in controlling this. He's interested in presiding over it and measuring it and wringing his hands. But he's not done anything to actually stop transmission. So we're in a bad place now. And, and so, yeah, we need to lock down, but only because we have really failed. We had ample warning that the second wave was coming. And, and Colin, one of the things that stuck with me is uh, I wonder if that was the problem. You know, we kept saying, OK, well, then we're going to have a second wave in the fall. And I think people decided, well, let's get it all in before it's taken away. Is that a possibility that we, you know, with this information that on the fair warning that we would have a, uh, a second wave that would be stronger, that people decided to tr try and pack it all in. 
but I guess we need to separate what government did and could do and what people did and could do. Government spent the summer tweeting. I remember Minister of Health tweeting every day about how little COVID there was. And I remember thinking to myself, this is not how you should be spending your time. We, we learned how COVID behaves in the first wave. We went, from, we went from finding people from sitting on park benches to understanding that masks work and what super spreader events look like. We learned so much. And then we applied none of that knowledge to trying to prevent or mitigate the second wave. We did nothing. We did nothing with marginalized populations. And of course, when COVID came back, it came back exactly the same way. It's not a mystery anymore. And so we, 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 we spent the entire summer not getting ready. And also, obviously, not messaging the public appropriately. So yes, when, when, when you say, did people just sort of respond that they'll just get it in while they can? I guess maybe they did. But I'm not going to point my finger at people. I, I, I have to say the messaging, the public education involved was dismal. It was the wrong message. And, and it really gets down to saying, hey, look, go to a restaurant or a bar all summer long, well into the fall, take all your friends, no masks, drink, eat, be merry, listen to music, dance, shout, hug, do it all. That's fine. That's safe. It's a good idea. That's what we told 15 million people in Ontario. To I do. don't think we wanted them dancing or, or shouting. We said it was okay because we didn't ban- we didn't ban it. We said it was okay, and then we said, "Please just don't do this in your homes." And you know, people couldn't make sense of that, and right. I think they couldn't make sense of it because it makes no sense. And okay, go ahead. Can I can I just interrupt for two seconds, Colin? Because I don't have a ton of time with you, and I really want to ask you th- about this because yeah. I don't understand it. Uh, there is some talk that this lockdown might actually extend to uh, curbside pickup. What could be the problem with curbside pickup? I don't understand that. Um, a lot of the decisions, and they're hard decisions to make about where to draw the line between what's essential and what's not, and what's a big store and what's a small store, and where there's risk. It's pretty tough to come up with simple rules to accommodate that. But curbside is one thing that actually seemed to me to be working really well. In malls, that's actually tricky. But if it's if it's if you have a door to the outside, which is what it was like in March, if you had a door to the outside, then it was fine. And so the restriction may be no curbside pickup when the outside of the store is indoors, like in a mall. It could be that. I support curbside. I, I, I think we need to try and minimize economic damage. And, and curbside and takeout, these are the ways to go. Colin, I, I want to thank you. You are always a wealth of information and really help us wrap our head around this COVID story. Uh, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. That's Colin Furness, epidemiologist at the University of Toronto. We are in for what is uh, being called the great conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn this evening. Paul Delaney is 640 Toronto expert in space exploration and astronomy and professor at York University. He joins the show. Paul, I told you I'd want to have you back again. Ah, you're dead right, Kelly. (laughs) Nice to be here. It's great to have you. So why is this uh, such a big deal, this great conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn, Paul? Well, to have the two largest planets in our solar system get so close together, less than one-tenth of a degree, and the sky happens about every 400 years. So it's a literally once-in-a-many-lifetime opportunity to see these two planets in the same field of view of the eyepiece of a telescope or just merging to be some, become quite bright in the southwestern sky. So they'll be, are these two planets going to be like beside each other? Will they look like they're on, uh, you know, like hanging out together? Is that what we're going to see? Oh, we're using the really technical term, they're kissing. I mean, they are oh. that close together. I mean, think of the diameter of the moon 
and now one-fifth of that diameter. That's how close these two bright points of light are going to be. And Jupiter itself is the brightest point in the sky outside of the moon. So having these two objects at a first glance merge to be just one object, as I say, it's pretty special. Yeah, it's special because they, you know, we'll be able to see them. They are very close. How often did Jupiter and Saturn pass, though, on a regular basis? Uh, about every 20 years. You know, they move around the sun just like the Earth does, and their relative orbital periods mean that every 20 years they get relatively close. But relatively, you know, it's obviously a term which you know, can mean anything, but two to three times the diameter of the moon is their usual separation. To be, as I said, one-fifth the diameter of the moon that's what makes this particular uh, conjunction so grand. So the last time a person could clearly see this event was on March 4th, uh, 1226. That is, uh, <laughs> that's pretty impressive. And we're talking about this will be visible to the naked eye. Is that all night? Easily. Uh, no, unfortunately, you've got to be on your toes at sunset. Uh, it's only about 20 degrees east of the sun, which means as the sun sets below the western horizon, Jupiter and Saturn will become clearly visible in the bright twilight. I, I suggest binoculars. But over the next half an hour, as twilight deepens, the sky gets darker, and that's when Jupiter and Saturn will put on a real show. But by 7 o'clock Eastern time, they will have set. So you've, you've got to be out there literally at 5 o'clock to begin looking. And if your neighbor's house is in the southwest direction, they'll probably obscure the view. So you really need to have a nice hmm. field, a nice open southwest you said that they'll begin to set. Planet setting? Can you explain what you mean by that? <laughs> Absolutely. Everything rises in the east and sets in the west. Everybody knows that for the sun. Well, the moon does the same thing, so too do the stars. Everything in the night sky, because of the Earth's rotation on its axis, rises in the east and sets in the west. So Jupiter and Saturn, they're about 20 degrees east of the sun at the moment. As the sun sets, Jupiter and Saturn will be 20 degrees above the horizon, roughly. But as the time goes by, you know, stars, everything in the sky moves at about 15 degrees per hour. So literally an hour and a half or so after sunset, Jupiter and Saturn are going to set as well. Okay, so tonight's the great convergence, but this this conjunction, is it's going to be ongoing through Christmas. Will we be able to look out on, you know, if it's cloudy today, will we be able to look out through the Christmas holidays just at, at, around sunset? That's right, absolutely. In fact, for those of us who have you know, been waiting for tonight eagerly, we've been following these two objects for the last several weeks, obviously getting closer and closer night by night. It's, it's a great example of planets moving in our solar system, moving with respect to each other, with respect to the more stationary stars. It's been quite the show. As you indicate, this is not going to suddenly stop tonight. Tonight just happens to be the closest approach. But tomorrow night, they'll be almost as close the next night after that, not much different to tonight and so on. So, yes, watch it over the next 10 days and you will see these two objects, you know, as close as they're going to be for another 20 years. Uh, but as I said, tonight they'll be as close as they're going to be for another 400. Okay. Now, Paul, will, we, will it look to the naked eye like we're looking at a couple of very close stars? That's exactly right. Uh, Jupiter is very, very bright, and uh, you know, it has sort of almost a sparkly quality when it is that bright. And then just above it, for those of us here in Canada, you will see an also quite bright point, but not nearly as dazzling, and that's Saturn. And so 
a quick glance, they'll, they'll merge. The, the brightness will merge. Binoculars will easily separate it. And if you've got a telescope or you're tuning in to, you know, the York Observatory stream, you'll be able to see the magnification, the rings of Saturn, the, the belts of Jupiter, the satellites around both the planets. It will be an extraordinary sight in an eyepiece if you can get magnification onto those two objects. Now, people have been talking about this online, so i got to bring it up. Um, the link to the Great Convergence to the Star of Bethlehem, which, according to the New Testament, guided the uh, Magi to the birth of Jesus. Is it possible, or, or is it unlikely that this would, Jupiter and Saturn together, being you know in a, a situation where they were so close together on the horizon, would have been what um, the wise men would have been following? There's been lots of speculation, both within astronomical circles and outside, about just that. I mean, we've got lots of bright objects in our sky which are transient objects. They come and they go, supernovae, comets, and so on. When you get two planets, particularly, for example, Jupiter and Venus, they are just a stunning sight. I mean, you think Jupiter's bright, Venus is, you know, about five times brighter than that. Those two objects actually did come together around about 3 B.C. If you could tell me what date I'd be looking for, that is, you know, when did Christ get born, uh, you know, we will be able to give you a more astronomically definitive answer. But the actual date for the birth of Christ is, is not very well known. And so it spans, I think dates that span nearly a decade. Well, hmm. in that decade, Jupiter, Venus, Saturn came into conjunction on many occasions, and there was a very, very close Jupiter-Venus conjunction, as I said, around about 3 or 4 BCE. So is it possible that there was an astronomical uh, uh, um, representation of the Star of Bethlehem? It certainly is possible. Wow. Is is the the fact that these planets look like stars in the sky, is that because of the sunlight bouncing off them? Why do they look like stars, Paul? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Stars, uh, stars shine by what we call their own light. They are self-luminous because of a process called nuclear fusion. They're generating energy. But planets are like dirty mirrors. They do not, uh, they're not self-luminous. They can only shine by the reflected light from our sun. And that's why we can see the moon. The moon is not self-luminous. It's a dirty mirror. Most planets are actually quite dirty. They don't reflect very much light from the sun. But because they are big and the sun is very bright, there's more than ample light that comes back to us for us to see them clearly here on Earth. Planets tend not to twinkle. When you've heard the expression twinkle, twinkle, little star, well, stars, when they're close to the horizon, are very, very point-like sources, and they get impacted by the atmosphere. Atmospheric scintillation is the exact term. But planets are actually considerably larger in diameter, even though your eye can't see it, and they are not affected by this atmospheric twinkling. So stars twinkle, the planets tend not to. They're a much steadier light close to the horizon. Paul, before I let you go, and I'm not sure if we're going to speak again before the end of the year, if we don't, what do you think has been the most important stories uh, of the year when it comes to uh, space exploration and space in general? Oh, gosh, there's been a number of, of big events this year. I mean, the, the, the couple that spring readily to mind, the sample return mission by the Japanese Space Agency to bring pieces of Bennu, an asteroid, back to Earth. Oh, sorry, Ryugu, 
uh, Osiris Rex did the same sort of thing down onto Bennu. So sample return missions have highlighted this year. But the Crew-1 Dragon flight in May that took humans from U.S. soil back to the International Space, Age, uh, Space Station, that was big stuff. It's going to usher in space tourism next year. So those perhaps are the, the, the biggest events. But, you know, LIGO, the merger of uh, neutron stars this year, that was another big astronomical event. Fast radio bursts trying to figure out what they were. More exoplanets. There's been a very long and uh, yeah, terrific history this year of astronomical first. But sample returns and the Crew mm-hmm. One mission to SpaceX, those are probably highlight my list. What What about uh, for you? Uh, what is the most exciting story of the year, personally? I'm a big space enthusiast. I mean, even though I, I love, obviously, astronomy in every possible form, to be able to see SpaceX fly into Earth orbit so repeatedly to bring their, their their first stage back so that it's reusable. The idea of going to and from Earth orbit in a very you know environmentally sustainable manner and at a price point that would see you and I fly into Earth orbit in the not-so-distant future, to me, that's a huge step forward as far as humanity in general is concerned. So, you know, I'd probably hang my hat on SpaceX's achievement with the Crew-1 Dragonfly in May. Um- I got to ask, Paul, did you say um, you and I being able to fly into Earth's orbit in the near future? <laughs> well, have you got $250,000 nah, No, not so much. No, my pockets <laughs> seem to be a little bit uh, short on some change here, Paul. But soon, soon, you and I will have the opportunity, whether or not we've got the financial resources to do it. But just like air travel in the 40s wasn't for everybody, now it is so too will spaceflight into Earth orbit and potentially the moon be something that everybody will be able to do or at least have the opportunity to do, I would suggest to you, within the decade. Why would we do that, Paul? Why would we do it? To be able to to look at the night sky from Earth orbit, to be able to see the Earth below you, that would be magic, Kelly. So just a thrill ride. (laughs) Isn't that what we're all looking for on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I'm just looking for more affordable thrills, I guess. (laughs) This is true. It's not going to be cheap in the foreseeable future, but the sheer fact that you'll have the opportunity, the option, is something that's never been available to you and me until now. Paul, it's a pleasure having you on the show, and thanks so much for joining us again this week. If I don't talk to you again, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Uh, Here's to hopefully... A brighter 2021. Absolutely. Merry Christmas to you too, Kelly. Cheers. Looking forward to the great conjunction tonight. Uh, hopefully, you know, if we don't see it tonight, we can look over the the horizon uh, just after the sun sets and, and check it out through the holiday season. Hey, it's something you can do at home while you're you're stuck inside. Last week, I think we ended off the show talking with Rick Zamprin from our sister station, 900 CHML in Hamilton. And he was like signing off like it was the last time we were going to talk for the year. And I said, whoa, 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 are you not working next week? Uh, he is. And uh, so we got him back again today because he, Rick, confirm or deny when it comes to sports, I don't really know as much as you. <laughs> I will tentatively confirm that because you're getting there. You're getting there. Okay. Well, I think you're being very kind, but I do follow along and try and learn as best as possible. The NHL and the NHL Players Association settled on a plan for the upcoming season yesterday. Can you uh, give us an idea of what they settled on? Yeah, and and you know, this is very exciting for hockey fans because uh, we knew this was coming. This is going to be a 56-game regular season that is going to begin on January the 13th. 
there will be a full slate of, you know, every team is in. It's not like the summer where there was 24 teams and not the full 31. So all 31 teams are in. Uh, there's a new all-Canadian division, which the NHL is calling the North Division, which features Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver. They will strictly play against each other, as will all the other divisions. There's no cross-division pollination. There's no cross-border travels. It's strictly interdivision games. So the Leafs, for example, could play the Habs nine times, Ottawa nine times, and maybe one other team ten times, depending on how the schedule comes out. And that should be out within the next few days. But we're going to get a lot of hockey against some similar opponents, and it's all going to start uh, in a few weeks. Can they adopt the We the North slogan, or is that uh, owned by uh, the Raptors? I don't know if that's trademark, but I think We the North division has a great ring to it. That's for sure. Right. Um, You also, last week when we were talking about this, you didn't think it was the best idea when it came to our ability to win. Well, one thing's for certain. Because the way they have now released the divisions and the playoff format, so in the North Division, uh, four of those seven teams will make the playoffs. Um, And once the playoffs begins... Uh, those four teams will play against each other. So team number one will play team four, and team two will play team three, depending on how many points they accumulate during the regular season. Uh, The two winners will then play against each other for the North Division title, if you will, and that team will then go to the Eastern Conference Final. So it's guaranteed Mm. that a Canadian team is going to be in the Eastern Conference Final the way that they have set up the playoff picture. So when we were speaking last week, this wasn't uh, something that was at least out in the open if it was in the works. Exactly. Yeah, they were still kind of okay. humming and hawing and debating how that would work. But uh, who knows? Come come uh, sometime in May, the, the Maple Leafs could be in the, or it would be a little bit later than that, Maple Leafs could be in the Eastern Conference Final for the first time since, ooh, 96. But uh, hey, we're a long way from there. So is this the NHL kind of acquiescing to the fact that they know that we as Canadian, um, Canadians are better hockey players and we deserve to, you know, if we're playing the best of the best up here, we deserve a little leg up? I think it comes down to, well, every, every division is going to be the same. I mean, the winner of the division is going to get into the conference final. But I think it boils down to the border because uh, they don't want Canadian teams or American teams crisscrossing uh, the border to play against each other. That, that's basically why they've set up this Canadian division. Uh, basically, each division is its own hub. Those teams will only play against each other. They won't, you won't see the Boston Bruins travel all the way to Los Angeles to play the Kings. Boston will just play the teams in their division, and the divisions are constructed basically geographically. So all the Canadians are going to stay up north until the playoffs come. And then at that point, it'll be basically a best-of-seven series in, in one particular city if the virus, and you know, knock on wood, I'm sure it's still going to be a thing, And even though we have the vaccine. But uh, say the Leafs will play Boston in the Eastern Conference Final. Maybe all seven games will be in Boston, or maybe all seven games will be in Toronto. That remains to be seen. What matchup are you looking forward to? Well, I think there's a few. Number one, obviously, being a Leafs fan, being in Leafs country, you know, Toronto, Montreal uh, for a potential nine or ten times is just absolutely juicy. But for me, you know, one of the biggest rivalries, uh, let alone in Canada, but in the entire league is Edmonton-Calgary, the Battle of Alberta. Those two teams really detest each other. They're usually very physical games, lots of fights, high-scoring, hard-hitting action. Edmonton versus Calgary, I think, to me, if they're playing nine or ten times in a span of a few weeks, uh, that's going to be very exciting. 
I like that you brought up Edmonton because that that leads me to uh, one of my questions, which was this all hinges on approval from health officials in the five Canadian provinces. So Mm -hmm. if we say, no, we don't like the idea of moving around within the provinces here in Ontario, we could be looking at a bubble in Edmonton. Can you talk about what, what the plan is there? There, there could be bubbles everywhere, really. I mean, when you think about it, you know, BC is really pushing back against this NHL plan. Um, so the Vancouver Canucks may be forced to play somewhere else. It could be, who knows, it could be in Edmonton. It could be here in Toronto. It could be anywhere uh, across the country except for BC. Uh, you know, Alberta officials are looking at this, humming and hawing. Ontario certainly, you know, looking at the NHL's plan, as in as is Quebec. You know, those two provinces have not rubber-stamped this officially. Um, so, yeah, we could have, you know, a couple, maybe three, four teams in, in every division kind of playing out of a, a hub. The NHL doesn't really like that because, you know, players will be segregated from their families for a, a long period of time. A lot of the feedback from the summer kind of restart in Toronto and the Edmonton bubbles was, you know, the players love being back on the ice, but they really miss that, you know, going home and hugging their wives and children type of atmosphere. Um, so a bubble format is not the NHL's first option. Well, Rick, in an effort to be fully transparent with you and all the listeners, I really hope that you uh, know that's my dog licking himself in the background while you tell us about sports. <laughs> I, and... did, I didn't notice, but thanks for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm a giver. That's what I do. Rick, thank you very much for getting us up to speed on what's going on with hockey. I appreciate it. And uh, when we get confirmation on the final um, I guess, way this is going to shape up here with our Northern Division, I might reach out to you again. Definitely. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, Rick. Take care. That's Rick Zamprin from our Global News. Uh, thanks so much for tuning into the podcast. Always appreciate your time. Have yourself a fantastic afternoon, and we'll do it again tomorrow. A sister station, 900 CHML in Hamilton, talking about a hockey. Thanks so much for tuning into the podcast. Always appreciate your time. Have yourself a fantastic afternoon, and we'll do it again tomorrow.